So as I mentioned, we've hit this turning point in Ephesians, right? We've been in this journey for quite some time. We've been through three whole chapters. There's six chapters in Ephesians. We've made it halfway through the book, and rightly so, Paul is going to pivot on a dime. He's going to make this shift where, if you remember, if you're here for the first time, you can, you can, I encourage you, if you're interested, to go back and you can take a listen to all of them. They're all online, but I won't get into it too deep. But the first three chapters essentially are a theological setup. It's Paul reminding this group of believers, both Jew and Gentile believers, who they are and what God has done in and through them. And he's implored them from a theological, from a doctrine standpoint. He's basically laid the foundation of why God has done what he has done through Jesus Christ. He's called them to remember. And he pivots here into chapter 4, and he's going to say, now that you remember and know, it's time to begin to live. He's going to exhort them. He's going to push them. He's going to challenge them to begin to live now these things that are true. Paul does this in all of his letters. He spends a fraction of the time or a portion of the time setting them up, reminding them, and then he pushes them over the edge to say, now you have to go and begin to live it. And that's what he's going to do in chapter, uh, chapter 4. He's going to make this pivot, and he's going to push the church out of the nest. Now, for a large part of this book, Paul is pushing towards this great mystery revealed. And we've talked a lot about it. But the great mystery of God's redemptive plan revealed, which we need to keep in mind for our study today, is this. That God has taken both the Jews and the Gentiles. And through the death and resurrection of Jesus, he has grafted them in into one new family of God. So the big mystery is that God's chosen people, the Jews, are not just his chosen people. That Christ has died to bring in and to draw in all those who are non-Jewish. That anyone who professes faith in Jesus Christ is now part of the family of God, which is beautiful and great news for you and I. It's great news for us because we are a part of this outside set of people now that have been included in God's redemptive plan throughout history. And that beginning plan happened with creation and led all the way through the Old Testament movements and works and prophets and kings to the proclamation of the coming Messiah, to Jesus himself, to what unfolds on Easter Sunday through the resurrection and through the falling of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. All of these things have led to this moment where Paul says, this is my call to tell the world that in Christ we are one. All right, so that becomes the new family of God. And so that anchor point, Paul's going to assume that we all know and he's going to begin to teach us how to live into it in chapter 4. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to flip over to 4. We're going to be in three whole verses this morning, and we're going to move through them relatively... Yeah, we got a few minutes. Got just a few, a few shakes of a lamb's tail. So if you've got your Bible, flip over to 4 at 1, and we're going to look at the first three verses, and we're going to begin to see the movement that Paul is going to make on how we begin to live out this new call as one new family. And it should be the blueprint for the church. So let's take a moment, let's pray. Lord, uh, we pray specifically, we've lifted up a ton of things this morning already, so we pray specifically this morning that you would teach us through your word. We cannot open scripture and learn. You have to reveal truth to us. You tell us that. You actually tell us that you are the revealer of truth. We don't just discover you on our own. You are infinitely indefinable. You are undiscoverable. You are that holy and that good. And so you reveal yourself through your Holy Spirit. And so, God, we ask this morning that you would teach our hearts, that you would reveal yourself. And the simple words that we're going to see in 4.1, that you would make them an imprint for how we're called to live and treat each other and interact as a community. So as you sit here this morning, just invite the Lord to teach your heart. 
in humility and in grace, just ask the God of the universe to teach you something new, something you might need to hear, something you might need to live out. Just ask God to teach you this morning. And take a moment and pray for someone around you or beside you. Uh, Pray that God would move in them. Be in the habit of praying for other people. I mention this every week. Everything that unfolds on a Sunday morning is not about you. We've been lied to as the Western church. This is not a consumer buffet to come and pick from. Get involved. Care about the other people. Ask God to move in them. Pray for the people around you this morning. Lord, we turn our morning over to you, every bit of it. We ask you to teach our hearts, instruct us, and knit us together as a family of God. We ask this in the risen name of Christ. Amen. Chapter 4, Paul takes a pivot. We're going to look at the first three verses. He's done all this doctrine, now he's going to move us to duty. All this theology, now he's going to move to instruction on how we live. And this is what he says. As a prisoner for the Lord, excuse me, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle and patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So Paul goes back and says, listen, You may remember this from chapter 2. I'm in prison because of the gospel. And he is. He's waiting trial in Rome. Uh, He's been basically made a plea to Caesar. And he's waiting on trial because of, well, a lot of things we learned in Acts, that he was instigating all kinds of issues and they were going to kill him. And Paul appealed to Caesar and then sailed across the world essentially to be wait to go on trial. And he's under house arrest in Rome waiting to see Caesar to decide his fate, whether he will live or die. And so Paul says, I am a prisoner, and I urge you as a prisoner to hear me, all right, because what I'm getting ready to tell you is essentially your direction. And Paul says, I am in chains for the gospel, and this gospel should change you as much as it has changed me. So he's imploring the church to realize that that being in prison is not a punishment. Paul sees it as this thing in which he is joyfully, as he mentioned back in chapter 2, and glad to do on behalf of them because he believes so deeply in its truth. And so he's saying, I urge you, because I've literally been put in chains for this, to take it this seriously, what I'm getting ready to tell you. These aren't just simple instructions, so hear them and hear them well. And he begins to give them instructions on how to now live out these things. And the first thing he basically says is this, is that you've got to live who God made you to be, right? And he says that in verse 1. He says, as a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Now remember, this is a gathering of both Jews that are believing and Gentiles that are believing. Both have been equally called through the resurrect, death and resurrection of Jesus into this one new family. And he says, I urge you then to live, in a li- live a life that is worthy of the calling that you have received. Now, what he's not saying is that we have to earn this calling. He's basically saying you have been saved and redeemed, and that saving and redeeming deserves an attempt to live wholly differently. A lot of times we get that understanding backwards when we think about our Christian life. We think because our worldly lives are geared this way that we have to perform to earn merit. 
We do this all the time with the people around us. We do things to earn things, right? I've got to earn the trust of my parents. I've got to earn the love of my spouse. I go out and do things to show people, and then they say, man, Trev is doing this. He deserves this in return. I can now trust you. I now love you. We do things to earn and merit things. We want to make our parents proud. We want to earn recognition at work. Our entire world is built around this idea that I need to perform or do something to inherit whatever that thing is. It's easy to roll that into our spiritual lives. We think that somehow God operates on that same principle, which is if God sees how hard I'm trying, he sees me working and giving my best effort, then he will say, you're doing a great job. Good work. I see what you're doing. I'll forgive that or I'll let that go or this one can slide or no big deal on the, you know, looking the other way on your taxes. Like, well, whatever. Like, I saw how you tried over there. You gave a homeless guy a shirt. Don't worry about 9% of the church is fine, you know. So we do this thing where we try and earn or merit God's love. But what Paul's essentially saying here is that you've been giving this calling first. God gave it to you. He chose you. In fact, in all through chapter 1 through 3, he says, you have been chosen. You have been predestined. You have been sealed. You have been sent. God did all the work in advance. You have been called into this family by his grace and goodness. Now, in response to that, live in a manner that is worthy of that calling. So living does not demand the calling. The calling demands the living. And this is the dichotomy and the way things change with the Christian mentality, which is, I don't have to live this way to earn God's favor, but I get to live this way because he's given me his favor. So this becomes what Paul's saying, is that you can control how you live in response to what God has done for you. If God has set you free and he's given you new life and he's, he's taken all of your sin and cast it as far as the east is from the west, you have the ability then to live in gracious response to that in a manner that is worthy of the calling. He says it to the Philippians this way. He says, live your lives in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. In other words, the things that you say, the words that you use, how you treat people, these now become become responses to this great calling that God has done. Because he has rescued you, saved you, redeemed you, you get to live wholly different. Not because you have to, but because of the privilege there within. Because knowing Jesus turns everything upside down, right? Before you met Christ, we hold on to everything we have with these protective robot hands, like the world's trying to pry it out of us, right? I'm not going to give out of my my resources, or I'm going to be afraid to, to engage with my heart. But then Christ comes in, he turns our world upside down, and we see that our resources aren't actually ours, they belong to him. We get to give our money away. We get to love people. I get to put my heart out there. I get to serve children. These are all privileges that come with being redeemed. They're no longer things you have to beg me to do or that I do so that God would give me some kind of favor. They are the outflow of what God has done. And he tells the church this, this new combined group of people, live in a way that reflects what Christ has already done for you. Now remember, these are two groups of people that do not get along at all. The Jews literally had spent 4,000 years dodging with everything they have the Gentile people, because even interaction with them would make them unclean for worship. And for centuries upon centuries upon centuries, they wouldn't even walk through the ground where these folks lived. And as I told you a few weeks ago, the temple itself had a Gentile court, which was divided by a wall called the Sorek, which meant that if Gentiles went through there, they were punished by death 
because they would defile the temple. And now God has said, hey, you're all in the same bouncy house. You know, a little vomit on the floor, a little bumping into each other. It's all good now. And they're trying to figure out how life looks like with that. And so he says this, you both have got this challenge to live this new calling. So he says, how do you do that? So this is the grind. So how do you begin to live this new calling? Well, he's going to give a couple of different ways. The first way he says this is you've got to love like the family of God, right? Look at verse 2. This is what he says. Be completely humble and gentle and patient, bearing with one another in love. So he says, listen, if you're going to be a part of a new family, you have got to love like the family. And you want some practical ways to do it? He goes, I'm going to give them to you. You want to know how to love your Jewish brother? You want to know how to love your Gentile uh, brother that are no longer Jews and Gentiles? Remember, you're all one. Those terms don't even actually apply anymore to this new race that God has made through the redemption of Christ. He says, but you want to know? Here's some great ways that you begin to love like family. And the first one he says is you do it with humility. So he gives these four little things, all right? Humility and gentleness and patience and bearing with one another in love. So humility. You know at the core, humility is a rec- just a simple recognition of who you're not. That's where humility begins. Humility begins with understanding who you're not. And if you've had an encounter with Christ, you recognize immediately who you are not. Right? And what I mean by that is this. When the Almighty, the creator of the universe, the one that breathed life into your lungs and hung the stars and that made the trees, and he decides that he loves you enough to rescue and redeem you, and you did nothing to deserve it, you begin to see your place in this world. You didn't do anything. You're not really that special. In fact, you're not special at all. You're not really that big a deal. You're sinful and you're broken. You're stubborn and you're hard-hearted. You're anxious and you're fearful. You worry. You're a hypocrite. And those things unfolded this morning. So what gives you a right or a place to be above anyone else? When you're a part of a family and you recognize that your place at that family was not, er- was not earned, but was freely given, you begin to realize what a gift it is to even be invited. The believer recognizes that their true place, because of their sinful hearts, is not at the table of God. It's just not. In fact, the Bible tells us very specifically, our place is eternal separation from God, which it clearly defines as hell. Yet, or but God, right, did for us what we could not do for ourselves, rescues and redeems, and therefore he puts us at this table, and humility begins with understanding that you don't even deserve to be there. We don't get the luxury to look down upon anyone. Humility is a right recognition of who God is and who you're not, and who you are in relationship to the people around you. It's a lowly heart. Not a lowly because you're like, oh, I'm terrible, but lowly because, as Paul would say, I'm the chief of all sinners. Like, no one deserves to be here less than me. Paul makes that claim. We talked about it in chapter 3. Humility in the family of God is that part that says, I get to serve and love people. It's the great privilege of my life. These people don't exist to serve me. And I've lived in churches, and you have too, where people believe that you exist to serve them. It's tragic, actually. What do you have to offer me? You know my family and I have been coming here for 25 years? We have always sat in that pew. And that lady came in and she sat there and her son wore a hat. In church, Treb, in church. 
we should probably kill him, truthfully. <laughs> he deserves to die. I mean, but this is the mentality, right? Like my grandfather, he paid to put this carpet in. We are not changing the color. It's red for a reason. Blood of Jesus. Yeah. All right. You know, I mean, this is what we live in, right? So humility is this thing that says, that's not really what any of this is for. I get to be here to love other people. And I've talked about this a lot. What if your mentality at church was, I get to go on a Sunday not to see what I get out of it, but so that I could love someone else? What if your whole role on a Sunday was to come and be some kind of encouragement to another soul? It was not because, hey, you know, so-and-so, this is not that great, or I'm not really into this. Or, or it was more just like, I want to show up in a place where people might need me to tell them I love them. Humility begins in a place that says, I don't deserve anything, but God has given me everything. And so, therefore, you are, you are not at a place below me. Like Paul, I'm the chief of all sinners. We all have a place at this table. I don't care what you did yesterday or what you do tomorrow. I'm equally as broken and sinful. So he says, you've got to love, when you start to love like family, you do it with a place of humility, right? He says, you also do it with gentleness. And gentleness is that idea of this kind and soft soul, right? Gentleness, when you think about it in terms of its goal as a fruit of the Spirit, is really this place where it says, I exist in a place of softness. Now, it's not weakness. There's a difference. Gentleness is a place of softness of heart. It's a place that's not going to get pushed over, but a place that treats people with a calm sensitivity. That when they screw up and they make mistakes and they blow it and they all will and I will and you will, that we respond to each other with this kind heart. You know you've been in a marriage for any period of time, right? And you've, you've had something that, that's messed up or you really blew something or you, you've wasted a bunch of money by accident or you crashed a car. And you're brokenhearted and you hate it. And you, the biggest fear that you have often is what? How am I going to tell my husband? How am I going to tell my wife? Right? Because we're so afraid of those reactions so often. But the sign of a beautiful heart, that gentleness, is when something happens. Right? I, I crashed the car. Or I, I, I did this. Or I lost our credit card. And whatever. And you tell that person who is the most important person in your life who's part of the same family and they look at you and they don't berate you and they say, look, it's, it's okay. It's not the end of the world. We're going to be all right. You didn't do it on purpose. And they're gentle. And how does that make you feel? It settles your soul, doesn't it? That all that fear was wound up in the, how someone was going to react. You've already beat the crud out of yourself. And that person that you care about doesn't pile on. They just say, well, figure it out. That's a gentle soul. It's a gentle spirit. It's how we're called to live in family. We're actually called to live in that same spirit of gentleness. Here's the reality in life. You can't control anything. Perhaps the only one thing you can control is how you respond to any given situation. That might be it. You can't control what's going to happen when you leave here. You can't control how your car is going to turn left or right into whatever. You can't control the storms that are going to roll in in life. You can't control whether or not your husband or wife is going to get laid off from work or whether your kids are going to do something really stupid. You can't control a lot of these things. You can prep for them, but you can't control them. But what you can absolutely control is your response to all of them. You can control how you respond to people. You can control how you respond to people. You can berate or you can be a gentle soul. I, my favorite picture of all this has got to be Jesus in the parable of the lost sheep. Remember the sheep wanders off. He has to leave the 99. He goes and finds the one. And what does he do? The shepherd. He kicks the sheep in the ribs, breaks its leg, and throws it over the cliff. 
and says, you worthless piece of garbage. I can't believe you wandered. No. It says that he picks that sheep up, puts it on his shoulders, goes home and calls all the neighbors and throws a party because he found the sheep. He doesn't berate the sheep, tell the sheep it was a loser. I told you not to wander. I told you not to turn the car left. He just says, I'm so glad that you're here. This shepherd has a gentleness of soul. But don't take that for granted. The shepherd would die for the sheep. Shepherds were mean. They'd fight off a bear or a lion with a stick. They weren't pushovers. But in the parable, the shepherd was gentle because he cared for those around him. The picture of how you love like family is with that gentleness. You don't have to be pushed over. And we're not tolerant for the sake of tolerant, but we care about people enough to know man, my response to you is going to be calm and gentle. So he says, listen, you respond to each other with humility. You respond to each other with gentleness. You respond to each other with patience, right? Be completely humble, gentle, and patient. Jesus' ministry was a ministry of patience, wasn't it? If you think about it, everything he did from his ministry years was done in absolute and perfect patience. He was the picture of patience incarnate. I mean, you think about it, right? Everything around him had to make him drive him crazy. I mean, he made creation. He breathed life into lungs, and the same, those, that same breath was used to mock him as he hung on the cross. The disciples were so finicky, right? One day they were doing great. The next day they're arguing over who gets to sit at his right hand. He spends three years walking with Judas, only for Judas to choose some coins. On the night that he literally was betrayed, every disciple runs for the hills and he looks around and no one's left. He takes the thorns when he could call on the legions. And we learn this in Matthew. He could call on 12 legions of angels to come and deliver him from the cross. And what does he do? In patience, he allows the Father's will to unfold. He's patient with you. He's patient with me. I make the same mistakes Every single day. I am the same boneheaded, stubborn mistake maker all the time. And I know better. I know I should be controlling these words, these thoughts, these things. And yet God continues in this sort of lavish, patient way to allow me to work out my salvation through his goodness and grace. He is infinitely patient with us. And we are completely finite in our patience to other people. We give you three chances, and then I'm done with you. What if God looked at you and said, you got three good chances? Will we make it out of this building? No. The way that we live as family is with this infinite patience, which was exhibited through Christ. All of these things that we're talking about, Jesus was the display of. Infinitely patient. Do you know how hard that is as a parent? To be infinitely patient? I could share some stories. But do you know how hard it is for a kid to be infinitely patient with me? I don't even know what I'm doing. Like I make things up as I go along, and often my one rule of the day before contradicts the one I made the day before. And they're like, what the heck is going on here? I live in the twilight zone in this house. I'm like, eh. They're infinitely, patience is hard, right? But this is the call. 
right? To love his family means we love with this humility, this place of understanding that none of us deserve a seat at this table, yet God gave it to every single one of us that professes faith in Christ. And we're called to treat each other with that humility in the same way we recognize that we don't know more than God. Quit arguing with him. With gentleness, this sort of softness of spirit, and with patience. I tell Brandon all the time, Brandon's a much, we all know this, Brandon's a much better person than I am, like by a thousand degrees. I tell him all the time, this would be, this church thing we do would be so much easier without people. <laughs> I, got, I say it once a week. I'm like, man, this thing would be great without people. It would be awesome. We'd be, we'd be killing it. What was the fun of that? But patient with people, right? That's the call for each other within this family. And then finally, he says, he says this. He says, and then humility and patience and gentleness, and we bear with one another in love. So I don't think when he says bear with one another, he means like we carry each other's burdens, like you bear someone else's struggle, although that is certainly part of what it means to be the body of Christ. I think in context with these other three things, what it means is that idea of bearing is also this idea of enduring. So we endure with and we forgive because it has that connotation to it with other people. So we endure with other people. We bear with other people. And what this, is, this points to is this amazing reality that none of us, including myself, especially myself, are perfect. Because perfect people do not need to be endured, right? Perfect people do not need to be forgiven. They don't need to be walked with. You don't have to bear with them. You don't have to keep giving them second chances. You don't have to continue to watch them struggle or watch them grow at a slow pace, right? Enduring with people means that you walk with them in all of their failures and all of their shortcomings. It's the perfect picture of parenting. When you endure with your child, you watch them work out their growing upness in front of your very eyes. You watch them make a mistake, and you watch them learn from it. And you endure with them as they go through another one and another one and another one and another one. And you get the joy of enduring with them as they make mistakes and they need forgiveness and they need guidance or they just need a partner to walk with. Part of the family of God is this idea that there are going to be difficult people. They're going to be grumpy. There's going to be people that are hard to be around or work with. There's going to be great story toppers, right? You know, you come in, you're like, oh, I got to meet the mayor. You're like, my dad was the governor. You're like, oh, sorry. You know, there's going to be those people all the time. And part of this enduring is like we get to walk along people as God sanctifies them and makes them more like him. Because he's working in them the same way he's working in you. And believe it or not, you are actually that person to somebody else. You all have one, and you're that to somebody else. As perfect as you think you are, somebody around you has had enough. Maybe it's your wife. It's just true. So this idea of enduring with one another is this idea of I get to walk with you and forgive and, and, and watch you work out your salvation. And think about the two groups that are coming together, right? The Jewish people who believe they were so religiously elite, now with a bunch of people that haven't been even allowed to walk in the temple before, kind of going, everything was new, right? It's like running through a new house. Going, hey, there's a closet in this bedroom. And they're like, we've been living here for years. We know where the closets are. You're like, yeah, but this one's huge. And you're going, oh my gosh, these people are insufferable. But they're so excited. And so now this whole family is doing this thing together. And part of it, Paul says, he recognizes. He's not naive. He knows this is going to be challenging. And he knows that the church, even today, is going to be challenging. Every single one of us is here 
Well, I'll take that back. 90% of you are here because you did not like where you were before. You came from a church, right, that you didn't love for whatever reason, and you brought all of that here. And now we've got all of that here, right? And it's like, they were too big, too small. They did this, they did that. Nobody talked to me. They all talked to me. Like, it's just like, <laughs> enduring is part of the joy of being family, right? Watching God work out his salvation. So he says, listen, this is how you begin to live out this thing that I've called, which is a life that is worthy, right, of the calling you've received. You love the family of God with humility and gentleness and patience and bear with one another. And then he says in, in, in verse 3, he gives that last little piece. He says, make every effort, therefore, right, to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So basically, keep unity and fight for peace. This was going to be something that Paul is going to be driving home over the next three chapters because this is the breaking point for the church. You see, the enemy doesn't destroy the church from the outside in. He's not lobbing missiles in here. He just uses the internal workings to destroy itself. Destroys from the inside. The way it destroys from the inside is that unity gets broken. We begin to make alliances here and there. And it's not just here. It happened there. If you go read the book of 1 Corinthians, you'll see it unfold before your very eyes in the New Testament. They were beginning to align with people. Man, I love Paul. No, I, I love Cephas, Peter. Oh, I love Apollos. He's a much better teacher. And the other guy's going, I love Jesus. And you're like, oh, that's that guy. You know, he's like, Jesus. And so it's like they've all just divided themselves. Happens all the time. Unity destroys the church. Lack of unity destroys the church. And so Paul says, unity is actually contrary to everything that we know as sinful humanity. Our entire sinful worlds are ordered towards disunity. Yet God is a reconciler, which means he is the bringer back to unity. So God's entire movement on the cross through Christ was to bring back the chaos of disunity to unity in him. And so this incredible work that Christ did is gathering to unity, and the sinful nature of our hearts is scattering to disunity. And it's this constant tension. And so he says, you have got to keep it and fight for it. The church has got to be aware that it is always pushing because of its sinful people towards disunity. We are always pushing towards aligning ourselves with, with siloed things or programs or people. We're always pushing to be right. And denominations are sprung out of those movements. And denominations aren't terrible, but they're sure not the ordered movement of God. I mean, he is using them, but not in the original play of the church. So he's saying you've got to fight for unity, which means it takes work. It means you've got to reconcile differences. It means you have to ask forgiveness and you have to apologize and you've got to fight for peace. Our nature is to run. When things get hard, what do we do? We go and find a new church. That's our answer. And in our culture, and I'm not saying in yours, in, your, in this little Christian world, but in our culture, we do that with marriages, right? It gets hard. I don't want to deal with hard, so I run to disunity. Why? Because it seems easier than trying to fight for something. So divorce at its 54 plus percent rate is usually just the fact that we gravitate towards disunity when things get hard. I'm not downplaying it. I know there's a lot of other things that go into divorce and whatnot, but at its face value, it's the easy way because fighting for something that's broken is really hard and it takes a ton of work. 
And so it's much easier for me to get mad at the pastor or somebody who said something that I didn't like and just leave than it is to sit down and say, help me understand what's going on or what I missed or how I can apologize or ask for forgiveness or reconcile this broken relationship. It's much easier to just gather my toys and go back home. Problem is, that new home you go to, they got just as many problems, right? Because we are all gravitating towards disunity because of our sinful nature. And so Paul says, right, he gives us clear instruction, very clear instruction. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Means you got to take every effort to keep the unity and bond it, seal it, glue it together with peace. Not by covering up or pretending everything's fine, but to get in there and do the hard work so that it will last. If you're living on the brink of a broken marriage, this means that you've got to get in there and do the dirty work and glue these pieces together to make it last. And again, that doesn't just apply for the context of the church, but every one of us within the Christian community, our marriages, our, our, our children, everything gravitates towards disunity. Right? Our kids get estranged. Marriages fall apart. We get broken relationships with our siblings. Like these things are part of the natural order of sinful life, and we are called to fight for what God has reconciled. So if you're on the brink of disunity, fight for something else. Don't cave and run. That's what Paul's saying. Fight for unity. So for the sake of time, wrapping this all up, Two things I think you can walk away with, right? If we were to say, what do, what do we take away from this? And we're trying to do these takeaways as we explore Philippians, or Ephesians. What are the takeaways? Well, my two things are this, really this. Aim higher and live lower. And what I mean by that is this. You have been rescued and saved and redeemed by Jesus. He has given his life so that you might have new life in him. You have this new calling. And you did nothing to earn it or deserve it. He has given it and lavished upon you. He has chosen you, predestined you, called you, and sent you, sealed you. You have the ability to try and live a better life in response to that, to be kinder, gentler, more humble. You have the ability to say, I want to rid my life of the moral filth and garbage and things that are destroying me from the inside out. I want to get this out of my mind, out of my life, out of my head. I want to stop that behavior. I want to not use that language. I want to honor God in how I speak and live. And not just at home, but at work or when I'm with my buddies or wherever. I want my life to be worthy of the calling that I've been given by Christ. I can aim higher, and I will fall. I will miss it. I will blow it. I will use the F word. But guess what? That's okay because I'm fully redeemed, and I come before the Lord, and I confess, and I ask forgiveness, and God frees me, and I aim high again because that's the beauty of walking out our salvation in Christ. I can aim high. I don't have to resolve myself that this is what it's always going to be or I'm a different person on Saturday night than I am on Sunday morning, or the things that go on in my house I'm ashamed of, how I treat my spouse, how I speak to my children, I can aim higher. I've been saved and redeemed. I deserve nothing. I can aim higher. I can cut that out of my life. I can be different. I can be gentle and humble. And I'm going to aim to change. Why? Because I have to, so God will love me? Nope. He already loves me more than I can ever imagine. It will get no bigger. But I get to. I'm going to live in a life that is worthy of the calling. So I'm going to aim higher. So whatever that is for you, don't resolve it to just saying, that's kind of who I am. I'm going to cut this out of my life. I'm going to be done with it. I'm going to do it one day at a time. And if I fumble it up tomorrow, 
I'm going to start again on Wednesday or Tuesday or whatever. <laughs> Kathy was like, there's the F word. I heard it. Did not hear it. It's a football term, the old fumble. That last thing is, I got <laughs> to live lower. Got to live down here with Kathy in the lows. Lows. Got to live lower, right? Which just means you're not that big a deal. You don't, the universe doesn't revolve around you. Don't be that person at work, at home, or in the church, right? Just be the person that's humble and gentle and kind. Like, live lower. If your wife comes home and says, gosh, it's going to be cold tomorrow. It's going to be in the high 30s. And you're like, no, I read it's in the low 40s. You're like, 41, 39. What's the difference, dude? Don't be that dude, right? Like, just live in a place that's like, yeah. You know, hear somebody else's story. Celebrate with your children. Like, just be in a place where you live less of yourself, right? Live lower. Seek less recognition and more goodness and greatness of God. Like, aim higher and live lower. And you begin to understand how this piece of the family of God works. It's a beautiful thing. It's what we're called to be and who we're called to be a part of. Let's pray together. Lord, as we close our time in worship and as we celebrate these incredible and impeccable and unbelievable truths, we're reminded of the simplicity of the gospel at its core, that we've done nothing and you've done everything, that you have orchestrated all of redemptive history to bring us to a place where Christ died on the cross and was raised from the dead so that we might have fullness and new life in you. And now we're called to live into that to not give in to anxiety and fear and worry, to not give in to pride and stubbornness and hypocrisy, but Lord, in the fullness of grace and who you are, to recognize that we've been saved and that we're called to live differently the best that we can with great humility because it's not in our power. You strengthen and you empower. We're called to love each other as family, the family of God, even those that aren't like us, that aren't from the same place or the same way of thinking, that we're called to love with complete humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, and to fight for and keep the unity and peace. Our lives just disintegrate to disunity as soon as we take our eyes off you. And so, Lord, help us focus on you, to fight for unity, for the togetherness that comes from the gospel, that we are much more alike than we are different because of Christ. He has knit us together. And so, Lord, make this be our, our banner, our battle cry for the church, that we will live in this way. For you have done for us what we could not do for ourselves. And so, Lord, in you, all these things are ours. You are the king of kings. You are the head of the household. You prepared every seat at the table and you invited us to come and sit. We are your family. We love you. We thank you for Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together and close our time in worship.
Amen. Man, God is so good. Let's give uh, Josie and Chase a hand for leading us in worship two weeks in a row. We're going to welcome Don back next week, but we're glad to have you guys. Thank you all for pouring your heart out with us. But this is what it means to be the family of God, to recognize that God has done for us what we can't do for ourselves, and we are called to love each other in the same way. Aim higher, live lower.